I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Hi there, this is Dale Borglum from the Healing at the Edge channel of the Be Here Now podcast network. And I'm happy to be with my friend Donnie Nelson today. Donnie is in one of the groups I facilitate, this one in San Francisco. Uh, Donnie's a nurse at one of the local hospitals. He works in palliative care. And in that capacity, he sees a lot of people who are in crisis, many of whom are approaching death. I have been a meditation teacher for a long time. And as a meditation teacher, I got really good at meditating. I had all these great meditative experiences. But what I began to really come to was that even though I could, even though I was a good meditator, I was having a really hard time integrating that practice into daily life. And eventually came to some notions of why it's so hard for Westerners to meditate. A lot of them having to do with people not being embodied, not particularly embodying the lower part of their bodies, being grounded and being centered, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So after I began working with this embodiment stuff, and it really began changing my own practice, that's when I started facilitating these groups. And many people, including Donnie, I think, have found that bringing notions of being grounded and being centered as a foundation for the dissolving and opening work of going into the heart and beyond has been very, very useful. And that's what I'd like to talk to Donnie about today, his experience working with people in crisis, his own issues, both before and after he got involved with doing this embodied meditation. So hi there, Donnie. How you doing? Hi, Dale. I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for asking me to do this. So maybe you could say what it was like trying to be a nurse in a palliative care unit in an inner city hospital without having a spiritual practice. Okay. Um, 
you know, I got into nursing like in 2001, a series of events happened that um, I decided I wanted to be a nurse and I definitely wanted to work in a hospice or palliative care and um, got my degree. I was working in an ICU and I kind of fell into this position. And I guess the point I'm getting to is I absolutely didn't really have any kind of training when you're doing palliative care. And one of the tenets of palliative care when you're working with others is you have to do some self-care. And uh, maybe, after you could, about, uh, maybe you could briefly describe what, is what palliative care is. Yeah. Ah, everybody says, no one knows what palliative care is unless you're doing it. Um, so a lot of people liken palliative care to hospice, which it's actually a little bit more than just the hospice. Ideally, palliative care, we want to get a consult to work with patients and their families at the time of diagnosis. So when somebody's diagnosed with a, cr a chronic or terminal illness like cancer or some kind of end-stage COPD, some lung issue or kidney disease or liver disease, um, we can come in. And sometimes people are going through an existential crisis. We can help with that. Um, I will come in and I'll do symptom management. I work with the families. Most often, though, in the realm, uh, role that I do now is um, I'm working in an ICU. And most of the time, there's families coming in. There's some kind of sudden event with a patient. They have a stroke. They have a heart attack. Something happens. A lot of times, they may not be coming out of that ICU. And then I got to work with the families. I also see patients come in, too, with high trauma that don't have any families. And sometimes those are the really tough ones. So after I fell into this role of doing this for two years, I didn't know how what to do with all these feelings that you, you just stuff this stuff day in day out i see some really traumatic things and i never really processed it which is why i went looking for you or looking for some kind of meditative practice <laughs> i mean i was trying all kinds of things um actually the way i found you was uh so what happened was is i had a real traumatic event and we had this patient it was this 40 year old gentleman um a lot of the patients are in the downtown san francisco in the tenderloin they come in as John Doe's, you know, they suffer from poverty, they suffer from addiction, they have all kinds of comorbidities to go along with that. And this guy was only 40 years old and he was found down and um, we never found out who he was. We fingerprinted him, we looked for family. Um, he came into the ICU because he um, had been laying down, he aspirated his own saliva, but he was laying on his arm and his leg wrong. They didn't get any circulation and so they ended up cutting off his arm and they cut off his leg and the whole process of that, I'm trying to find the family. Um, after about a week of that, we discovered we couldn't find the family. So part of my job is I pull together an ethics committee. And what we do is we then will talk about the patient. We do due diligence, finally can't find the family. And then we act as the family for the patient. Um, you know, I'm seeing all kinds of traumatic stuff all the time. But this, this patient in particular, and after working, you know, I work like a 50, 60, sometimes 70-hour week. Um, this patient, we decided to put on comfort care. When I say comfort care, that's when we will put a patient basically on a morphine drip, take them off any other kind of intervention we're doing at that part and let them pass very peacefully. Um, this particular patient was on a breathing machine. We call that intubation. And um, we put them on a morphine drip. Well, I had the meeting. And the doctor and the other, the rest of the team were the ones put him on comfort care. And I went to another family meeting and was doing my thing. I ended up getting a call overhead. And... Um, I race upstairs into our ICU. Somebody had called me, and usually that's an emergency, and I go in there, and there's one of my coworkers, this nurse, who's at the bedside crying, and I look over, and this guy had not been given enough um, morphine when he passed. What happens when that basically asphyxiated, and so he was in a lot of pain. He couldn't breathe. We use the morphine to help people breathe. Sometimes it requires a large amount in order to keep them comfortable as they pass, and uh, basically he died in a horrible amount of pain, and there was really nobody at the side at his bedside. And when that happened, 
I sometimes take that really personally because I didn't do my job. I felt like I should have been there. I should have managed that whole thing. But I should also be able to depend on my team to do the right thing with that. This is a really easy thing. I shouldn't have had to be there for that once we've got the plan set in place. So I came out and I asked the nurse, like, why did we let that patient you know, we didn't give him enough morphine. And she said that um, the other thing they forgot to do was to take his hand out of a restraint. He only had one hand. He couldn't scratch his nose, couldn't do anything. He was tied down and he died in a great amount of pain. But when I came out to ask the nurse, like, why didn't she take him out of the restraints? And she said that it was shift change and she had to go. And I flipped. I flipped out. They almost called security up there. I was screaming and throwing stuff around. And I just, I, take this surreal moment when someone just died and nobody cared. And sometimes I feel like I'm the only person who is fighting for these patients sometimes. Anyway, long story short, two days later, I ended up calling my boss and um, saying I couldn't do this job anymore. And that's just one story among many. And so I started seeing this therapist who did this in-body kind of um, meditation. I don't really like the therapist. However, he gave me a bunch of links and I ended up finding you. It's the Living Dying Project, which is right in line with what I was working with. So um, several months later, I took some time off. I went to Thailand, went to Hawaii, did a little self-care. And, um, you know, my partner and a lot of people in my life did not want me to go back to this job, but I felt it's my calling. So I went back. But if I was going to go back, I needed to have some things set in place so that when I see this kind of trauma, I can keep it here and still continue to do my job. And, you know, one of the things I've learned from you is people have their karma. Um, and so learning to do what I can and then really just sit in the face of some of this and not take it on. Well, the way you described it to me, maybe I'm wrong, but I thought you really burnt out uh, before you showed up in my group that it was like, almost impossible to go back to work and you had to take time off because there was so much pain in you. Yeah, when I found you, I had already had those four months off. I had gone back to work and in that time I had tried several different things. I went and checked out Shambhala. I went to the Zen Center. I worked with this therapist for a little while and none of it just kind of felt right for me. Um, finally though, I mean, I eventually found you and that's really, I started to have a practice. Okay. So, so you, had your, you have your two-day seminars that you do. I guess you do it once a year in February. And so that's really for, I felt for me, that was like, that's what I needed to be able to go back and do this kind of work and some of those techniques that you use. Okay, so why don't we talk a little bit, why don't I talk a little bit about these techniques? And as I said, uh, I myself, I, I, I was working with dying people, but in a much more controlled environment than you were. I was running the Living Dying Project, but people would come to me knowing that we were offering spiritual support, whatever that means. <laughs> and so consequently we got a very strongly pre-selected subpopulation it was not it was not homeless people it was not addicted people primarily it was mostly upper middle class neurotic people that we were dealing with although at the same time i was going into island hospital in san quentin uh during the aids crisis and doing work with the disadvantaged but mostly working with people who had life fairly together. But I was noticing that even though I didn't have the same kind of stressors that you did necessarily, it was very hard to bring my practice into daily activity. That I could have this great meditation and then I'd be out there and I'd get completely lost in some mental thing about what is going on. Mm -hmm. So, what I began to understand through some somatic work that I was doing was that I was really not in my body. And one could look at this, this big spiritual 
adventure that we're all on as the process of beginning to disidentify with character structure, with personality, ego structure, and mm -hmm. identify with our true nature, kind of a surrender process, a, a, almost the dying into who you are, a, a, a process of letting go. And if you begin this process of letting go from a neurotic beginning, it can get really, really messy. One of my friends said, you have to become somebody before you can become nobody. <laughs> and, and the Dalai Lama on his third visit to America said, now I'm beginning to understand you Americans don't like yourself. And it makes me really sad. So okay. if, if we're trying to let go of who we are from the beginning point of not liking ourselves, once again, it's not too hard to imagine that very quickly on it gets really, really complicated and messy. So why don't we talk just very briefly, why don't I talk about very briefly about this hypothetical little boy who's being born. And the first couple months, first couple years of his life is about becoming grounded about mm -hmm. learning that he can trust being dependent and that he's he's supportive, that he's nourished. And even if you have completely loving parents, there are going to be things that happen to you that really will shake your trust in that you're grounded all the time. I mean, my earliest memory was having a, a severe electrical shock by putting a hairpin into an outlet. <laughs> One of my other earliest memories was uh, putting a fork into a toaster to get my toast out and almost get electrocuted. And I That's really, not funny. <laughs> people laughed at that. I don't know why, but it wasn't so funny to me at the time, but it may be kind of funny in retrospect. And another memory I had was that when I was a little baby, baby bottles were made out of glass, and I was being fed on a schedule. And they gave me the baby bottle. I dropped it. It broke on the floor. And by the time they could sterilize another bottle and heat up the formula, it was past the time in the schedule to feed me. So they didn't feed me for four hours. And I was screaming with hunger. And uh, mm -hmm. I thought, maybe they're never going to feed me again. You know, <laughs> why aren't they feeding me? I'm telling them I'm hungry. And when I tell that story, people often think that's kind of humorous. Oh. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the point here is that, that, even though I had really loving parents, I had these traumatic things happen so that there was part of me not trusting that the world is a safe place that I can relax and open up and trust that I'm, I'm really taken care of. Mm. So that this, this process of grounding didn't happen very completely. And then from two to five, this little boy or a little girl, but in this case, we're talking about a boy, because it's you and me, this no. little boy learns to be centered the hara, the lower belly down there, the, the place from which martial arts are. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I began to notice was that I was really good at get, going up in my heart and going up in my head and doing all this meditative stuff, but it was really unstable because I hadn't created this foundation of getting grounded and centered. And beyond that, you were even talking before about keeping the, the pain at a distance. And the energy that we use to have boundaries so that you can go into these situations where there are, where there's so much suffering that it's, it's, it can be overwhelming if you don't know how to take care of yourself, that energy comes from being centered. The energy that is used when a tiny, tiny, frail, elderly martial arts master can defeat a young, big, strong novice. Because mm -hmm. it's not his energy, it's the energy. So what I've been finding is if we do some 
grounding and centering work before we start going into meditation, before we start dissolving and letting go, then in fact, for many people, they can trust that it's okay to just let the mind do what it wants. That instead of trying to force the mind to do something in order, instead of trying to uh, really struggle with things, that there is some sense of trust that we can go into the heart in the sense that the belly supports the heart. And my experience with you, having you been in the group now for, what, what about a year and a half, even a little more, maybe, about a year and a half. Yeah, a little longer. That uh, this idea of getting grounded and then getting centered when you're doing the dance at, at the palliative care unit or the ICU has really been very useful in terms of not getting burnt out again. Absolutely. You know, one of the first things I heard you say, because you say a lot of stuff and some of it just goes over my head, but you talked about that I could be in the room in the presence of somebody who's dying, but actually I was just being in the presence of being in the presence of somebody who's dying. You said something to that effect, and I felt like that resonated with me because I don't know if I was grounded when I was going in. I was either going to be too shut off and, or too open. So I totally feel what you're saying when um, having that grounding thing because I will go from patient to patient to patient to patient, and it's like I have to maintain that through the whole day sometimes it can be very hectic what did you say though what was your when i say that do you remember saying something to that effect it doesn't sound like anything i've ever said in my life <laughs> yeah, i swear you said it. <laughs> <laughs> so what i'm thinking i mean there's a couple things you go into a room and it's so easy to see a dying person in bed right that, that one gets caught in the identity there's a dying person there's a cancer patient there is an addicted homeless person. And to the extent that you can be there with a, a human being who happens to have these identities, that they're approaching death, that they're homeless, they're addicted, whatever, but not getting fixated on the identity. But there you are uh, really being present and just relating to that person in the present. Then it, uh, first of all, you won't be getting as, burnt out because you're not doing all that pushing away or getting lost. But but even beyond that, uh, to the extent that you aren't getting caught up in identities, then the healing energy that's part of you can be coming through. So that uh, in some spiritual tra traditions, they have this 75%, 25% notion. We're like, right now, here I am, I'm talking to you, we're not in the same room, you're in San Francisco, I'm in Fairfax, and all of my attention can be on what do I want to say next, what's Donnie going to do, and how can we make this thing work well? Or on the other hand, 75% of my attention can be I'm grounded, I'm centered, I'm in my body, and that supports my heart opening, and 25% is just what's going on here, is the, is the microphone working okay, is the good flow going on between and Donnie, but that I'm trusting that if I'm surrendered into myself, that I'm, I'm, I'm grounded, I'm trusting the nourishment from she who supports the mother, the earth, uh, whatever quality, whatever that energy is that supports, and that I can be centered, that I don't have to be uh, analyzing, manipulating, categorizing, and trying to understand everything that's going on. The Bible talks about the peace that passes understanding. So that right now, just suppose that you and I were in the same room, 
and that into the into the room came Donald Trump. Ah. Or into the room came Obama. Uh, okay. Into the room came both of them, okay? And it would probably be very hard for most people, maybe even you and me, to see them as just two beings. We'd get lost in, there's the president, or there's the Republican nominee, who you have all these concepts about him. Uh, so, so they have really strong identities. Mm-hmm because of who they are. But what I'm saying is that being a dying person is also a really, really strong identity. Right. Uh, we, we got a new client just this last week in the Living Dying Project, and I was trying to find who would be the appropriate volunteer for this person. There's this woman who is very accomplished. She's a beautiful heart, very wise person. But this was going to be her first client. And I said, how would you like to go and see so-and-so? And she said, I don't think I can do it. I, I feel inadequate. I mean, how could I be around a dying person? And I was trying to explain, well, it's not that much different from being with a living person. I mean, it's just <laughs> be, being with the person that happens to be dying. So that to, to, the, to the extent, though, that we're, we really are present, then we can do that. And what I would suggest that it's not like you're grounded or not grounded, but there's a whole spectrum. Mm-hmm. From 100% grounded to 100% ungrounded. If you're 100% grounded, 100% centered, then you can be in total chaos and it's not going to bother you. And if you're 100% uncentered, you're probably going to lock you up. You know. So, the, but that most of us are kind of swinging around there between 40 and 60 or something. And, and particularly though, if you have a job like the kind of job you have, where you're going into this really intense environment, it's so useful to have some tools like. Hong Len, like passion and abiding that we talked about, but particularly getting grounded and centered as a way of being able to be present. And for me, I've got a PhD in math. So that means that my mind is strong, but it's been really out of control. Mm. I'm addicted to understanding. I'm addicted to knowing, you know, and or like that. And <laughs> and uh, I, it's not something I'm bragging about though. And what I'm saying is that as, as long as I need to be doing that, it's really keeping me from being with other people, from connecting, from being in mm. relationship with myself, with you, with a client. So that that way of dropping into my body then supports the heart from open, uh, supports the heart to open. Because mm-hmm. because when the heart opens, there's a it's spacious. There's not a lot of self involved. Right. But if you're trying to become not self from this ungrounded, uncentered, neurotic starting point. It's not going to work. I agree. I am. You know, I, I find, too, lately that um, usually when I'm in there, I can be in the zone and I'm really focused on, on what's happening. But um, occasionally, you just get thrown a curveball. Like last week, I, I, I uh, usually when I go in and I engage with a patient, if they're able to talk or the patient's family, I always ask, them, what's your understanding? What did the doctor say? And more often than not, doctors do not like to tell people they're dying. They will say everything but that. And so unless you say you're dying, most people don't hear what's really happening. They are not reading between the lines. They're in this place of fear um, and terror about this disease that they're having. And so um, last week I had a 47-year-old woman who I – talked to and she thought she was in there getting cured she was in there getting a palliative procedure being done and um long story short 
I when I asked her what she said, she told me it was happening, and I was and I said, you know, you're you're dying. And she flipped out. She had not heard that from anybody. She probably only had a few weeks at this point. And so, and then I had to do that again with her family in front of her 13-year-old son and her husband. And there was so much anger and so much fear and pain. And, you know, I, I will go through that process and I walk them down, talk them down from the ledge and that we can get into a place where we can do some planning. Like, what are we going to do for you at this point? But, um... Man, when I come out of that room, I just have to go off into a corner and I'll do like a quick cry, do some breathing, and then um, I'm off to the next thing. But, you know, I think my practice for me sometimes comes in after I do that. But I just feel like when I'm in there, I can be with the practice that I have now, I can be really centered and focused. But um, it's hard. It's really hard. Well, that's I'm quite- petting my kitty. That's why we call it practice. Practice. So that if, if you can learn to be grounded and centered when you're with your cat or when you're at home or when you're walking home or something, when you, when you practice it in less stressful situations, then it begins to extend into more and more difficult. I mean, on the other hand, some people, and I think I'm one of them, I feel like I do my best in a crisis. Yeah, I agree. That like when things are kind of easy, I can kind of take it easy and say, well, you know, it's okay. Screw it. I don't have to really, I can just kind of slide through here. But well, like when somebody is approaching death, it calls out the best in them. Because I don't know if I'm ever going to see them again. And right. and in, uh, in, in Buddhism, there are these things called the four mind turning truths. You've heard me mm-hmm. talk about the truths that turn your mind toward wanting to practice, wanting to wake up. The first one is you're going to die, but you don't know when. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what could be more intellectually obvious than that? Of course, we're all going to die, and of course, we don't know when. But if you really knew you're going to die and you didn't know, how would it affect the way that you and I were talking to each other? How would it affect the way uh, we're, we're taking our next breath? There was a, a thing I saw on the Internet where you can go to the actuarial tables and see how many more years you're expected to live. And then there's this other website, it's called a, a, a time countdown or something like that. So you you put that in and I'm expected to live 6,000 some more days. So every day it goes down by one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I might, die, I might die before the end of the podcast, who knows? And I might outlive that thing. But just the idea that these things are clicking off one day at a time, it's kind of, it kind of, Kind of wakes you up and say, okay, I mean, here I am with Donnie. I expect I'm going to see you on Monday night. I hope I am, but who knows? Of course. So, no, but I mean, one Don't of let us, you die. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of the point here. So, uh, I choose to do this work because it wakes me up, not because I'm some saint or some Mother Teresa wannabe or something like that, but because being around people in crisis kind of forces me to go into my heart. It forces me to wake up. Because just the way it really hurt you when that, that, that first story you told, when that guy with one arm and the one leg didn't get the care that you thought he should be getting, it really, it really bothered you. It really hurt your heart. Whereas you can brush somebody off, walk them down the street, and it's not such a big deal. True. True. So, That's hard stuff. So I guess, you know, I mean, is there anything you could say about uh, how being grounded or centered has changed the way you're 
being with clients or your work as a nurse at the ICU? You know, one of the things that I, when I was started having a, a real practice was it's not the patients that I have necessarily a hard time with. A lot of times it's the people that I work with. Um, you know, and I can really come in with a very judgmental, very, you know, A, nobody's going to do this job as well as I am. A lot of the doctors, you know, I, I kind of judge them because they're not willing sometimes to have these discussions. Um, and a lot of, a lot of, you know, I work with a lot of Catholics and um, a lot of people don't necessarily believe in letting somebody go on a morphine drip. And plus there's families too who, you know, they're more concerned about keeping their loved one alive. So having a practice lets me just, maneuver through all of that as well, too, because I always realize, though, that I'm there for the patient. Um, it's always what's happening to the patient that bothers me. I love working with these this population, especially with these patients as well, too. I feel like I'm being of service. So um, being grounded, though, when I'm in a room and I'm feeling like this is not going the way I think it should, and even though I say it the way I think it should, it's the way it should be sometimes, most of the time, um, you know, I, I have to practice that breathing. And I also, too, I'm looking at these coworkers. They're suffering. They're suffering just like my patient's suffering. We're all suffering. So um, it lets me have a little bit of compassion as well when I'm working with people who may not necessarily believe in what I do for the hospital. A lot of doctors, old school doctors especially, don't believe in palliative care or hospice. So when, when suffering arises, there are three ways to deal with it. One is to push it away. Right. And the way these doctors that you were mentioning who aren't able to tell patients they're dying, uh, they're doing it because of their own fear, obviously, right? Correct. And, for instance, my brother was a, a Kaiser patient, and uh, almost two years ago now he died on Halloween in 2014 mm. of pancreatic cancer, but he was given his, his terminal uh, prognosis by his Kaiser oncologist in an after-hours email. Mm -hmm. So That's terrible. The, he called me up <laughs> frantically and saying, they're putting me in palliative care that I have cancer in my blood now. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm dying? There, there was, he, he, couldn't, he couldn't call his doctor because the doctor sent him this email at 7 o'clock. So in that situation, it's really easy to have compassion for my brother. Right. But can we have compassion for the doctor? And that's a hard one. It really is. That's where the practice really comes in. That is where the practice comes in. But think about the doctor. I mean, here's this guy. It turns out to be a guy in this case. Here's mm. this guy who decides, I'm going to be a doctor. I want to help people. I want to help cure people. And for some reason or another, he decides to be an oncologist. And lo and behold, a lot of his patients are dying. Right. And in the beginning of his practice, it's starting to bother him. He's probably getting burned out. It's like, it's affecting his dreams. It's affecting the way he's eating his Cheerios in the morning. <laughs> or his oatmeal or whatever the heck he eats, right? It affects the way he's treating his kids. So right. he, he unconsciously begins to figure out, if I keep that suffering at a distance and not feel it, then it's not going to hurt me. But the problem is then that he's not connecting with my brother. And he probably then he starts being that way with even people that he loves. So right. there's a really high cost to pay to keep suffering at a distance. Okay, so then there's there's possibility number two, suffering rises. You don't push it away. You get lost in it. Oh my God, what a catastrophe. How can I help? Well, use as an example the codependent social worker who's like so bothered by everybody's suffering, it's just driving him or her crazy. 
But there is a third possibility, not pushing it away, not getting lost, but having compassion with passion, being with suffering openly. Compassion has defining qualities. One of them is a spacious heart, not a contracted, oh my God, what's going on? Another is feeling connected. So one could have a practice of just going around asking yourself, am I connected? Am I connected to you? Am I connected to me? I connect. Am I connected to God? And if you're not, is there something more important to do in this moment than getting connected? Right. And the third possibility is, what is it? Spacious connectedness and warmth, a warm heart. Beyond that, the Dalai Lama has this great notion that compassion is the ability to equalize and switch yourself with another person. So can you equalize yourself and switch yourself? places with that doctor. What does it feel like to be that doctor? What does it feel like to be that homeless? What does it feel to be uh, have compassion for that panhandler? So there's there's a, a real difference between pity and compassion. Mm-hmm. And pity, we can keep somebody at a distance. But once again, doing that takes energy. It's exhausting. Right. I do find having... Having that compassion, though, does make everything a lot easier. It makes it more palatable. Definitely. Um, sometimes I have to <laughs> I have to look at whether it's the doctor or the patient. Like, that was somebody's baby once. That was somebody's brother. That was somebody, somebody that was loved. And um, that's able, I'm able to go into that place with them. So, Well, the Buddhists say that everybody at one point has been your mother, which I find very strange to think of you as been my mother. <laughs> but I find it much more palatable if everybody's been your mother then everybody's been your child right? That's true so it's much easier to go around seeing everybody's been your child not in some kind of hierarchical way I'm wiser and older than you, but that, that you, you care for them you really want them to do well you want them to thrive you want them to feel good you know and the Dalai Lama has this other quote that's really great. He says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice So to think about how simple life would be if the, the main uh, motivation for doing things was compassion, not do they like me, am I getting enough, what am I going to get out of this, but what is the compassionate thing to do, which includes compassion for yourself. It's not just compassion for this other person. Compassion is not this one-directional, I'm shooting compassion to person X over there. But it's that I'm feeling compassion, and that includes me. Right. And in the West, that's why the Dalai Lama is, like you were saying, it makes it makes them sad that people don't like themselves. A lot of people don't have a lot of self-compassion. And in fact, a lot of helpers in particular go into helping because they're not very good at taking care of themselves, so they unconsciously think, maybe I should try to take care of other people. I might learn something. I mean, that's my I could agree with that fully. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. Did you see that story on, I don't know if it was CNN or NPR, I think it was CNN today, with that little boy that they pulled out of that building in Syria? I saw I saw his pictures. He's all covered with dust and he had the blood on the left side of his face. He's kind of like really bewildered looking. Yeah, well, you know, I was going to, well, I don't know, we're doing the podcast now. I was going to bring this up in the group, but, you know, that just kind of stopped me in my track. So I saw the picture, which is devastating. I mean, I was wrecked. 
And um, it was just as wrecked as if I saw one of my patients really sick, which I'm able to put that in its place. But this one, I was just completely powerless over. And if you watch the video, they just they pull this little boy out and they sit him in the chair and they're just filming him the whole time. And he just he's shell shocked. And I remember he just touched his forehead and he looks down his hand. There's blood on it. He just wipes it on the chair and he's just and I'm just like that kid's going to be scarred scarred for the rest of his life and so like in in that moment there's just so much anger and so much angst um and i felt helpless and i'm just angry and it kind of reminds me some of those feelings when i first got in when i'd be working with these patients and there was nothing i could do so i mean just in life at large it's kind of i had really today i was been doing the egg laying breath all day thinking about that just trying to be centered grounded so uh a couple things why don't we share with our Lovely audience here with the egg laying breath is. Ah, because yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the best trick ever. <laughs> now that you now that you've let the cat out of the bag, so to speak, although the cats just still seem to be there. Anyway, <laughs> the, there's a teacher named Julie Henderson who wrote a really great book about embodying wellness. And she has a grounding exercise called the egg laying breath. There's so many ways to get grounded. You could imagine you're like a tree with your roots growing into the ground or whatever. But the egg laying breath is a really, really quick way to get over being startled or shocked or attacked or scared or confused. And it just is, it takes one or two breaths, boom, you get down into the base of your body. And as you breathe in, your abdomen rises, pushes down the diaphragm, and you imagine that you're pushing out on the in-breath an energetic egg out through the base of your torso. And then you just, on the out breath, you just relax and be easy. So you just, it, but it's a way of getting in touch with the base, with those muscles in the perineum, and the upper adductor muscle. So that right now, I mean, here we are. We've been talking about all these emotional things, and even that image of that boy. It's easy to get lost in the way that you're emotionally resonated by what's going to happen to that little boy. Right. And I think it makes it particularly difficult because you had childhood trauma. I had childhood trauma. So you see this little boy, and it's not just about this little boy. It it kind of it kind of uh, awakens that that dormant, scared little child in you mm-hmm. that, that that doesn't know the world is safe. And if you were to see them pulling out an adult. And he had the same shell shock look on his face and the same blood on the same part of his face. It probably wouldn't bother you as much. And actually, they did, and it didn't. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you know, in a way, watching TV, watching the news these days, I mean, it's so difficult to stay present. Right. Uh, when I go to these groups, I say the two magic words: say Donald Trump, and then people, people just. People go crazy, and it's I, I just I, I do it as like an exercise. Is it possible to think about that man and what he represents to you and not lose it? Right. Is it possible to? And I've got relatives who love Donald Trump, and I maybe a lot of people listening to the podcast. I'm not saying that's that's the wrong thing. That's up to you. It's not it's not my cup of whatever. But at the same time, uh, if if there's anybody out there, maybe it's Hillary Clinton that bothers you. Maybe it's Donald Trump. Maybe it's Bashar Assad or whatever the guy's name is in Syria who's bombing these civilians like crazy. 
Mm. But is it possible to think of that person and realize that you see them as being out of balance in a certain way and still keep your heart open? So as long as there's some image out there, some person out there, or the shell-shocked boy or the presidential candidate, that as soon as you think about them, your heart closes. It's not warm anymore. It's not spacious. It's not connected. Mm -hmm. And that's a gift in a certain way. That shows you a place where you can go more into your heart. Is it possible that the fear that arises when you see that image or think of that person inspires you to open your heart to go more gently into what scares you rather than automatically pushing it away with aversion? And if you want to be free enough, if you really know you're going to die but you don't know when, if, if you're really motivated then to practice, then these events that occur in your life and my life and everybody's that show us where we're, we're caught in the stickiness, the shenpa of the whole thing, where we're caught that's in the shenpa. stickiness. That's a Tibetan word. It just means caught in stickiness, caught in grasp. That it shows us that place, that's a gift because here's a way we can open. Here's a way we can become more in touch with ourselves. And so that eventually... By getting grounded and centered, it creates the foundation for opening the heart. When the heart becomes open and, and compassion is, are, is flowing in a rather ongoing way, the mind relaxes, the heart relaxes, there's a stability. And then we can start going into these other states where we talked about in the last group of resting in being, resting in presence, exploring mm. non-duality. I mean, because basically what we're doing here is being grounded is not is not the goal. Being grounded is a transition stage for getting to the point where we realize our wholeness, that we are so much vaster than we think we are. That, that you know, I think I'm Dale, and you're Donnie, and you're that guy, and I'm this guy. There is that level going on. I'm not saying we destroy that or think it's not true. But there's another dimension that we've all touched so many times. It's so much vaster. Than and to then, when we have these events in our lives that cause us to contract, then we can use them and keep surrendering back into that place of profound openness. So in a way, that's what's so wonderful about being around dying, because dying, someone who's dying, even if they're having a hard time doing it, is inexorably being drawn into that vastness. So that in a way that right now this conversation is preparing to Preparing, yeah. pre preparing to rest in that vastness, which could be called love, it could be called God, it could be called truth, it could be called presence, whatever you want to call it. What does the cat call it? Uh, I don't know. I think my cat is centered. Cats are pretty good at that. Yeah, as long as they're fed. <sighs> no, that was good. I was like, I just... I don't know if I can turn that into what I was seeing today, but um, yeah, that's just part of the practice too. I just feel like I needed to get up and go do something. And I'm able to feel like I do something in the presence when somebody's dying. I'm either helping them do some kind of thing or sometimes just my present is being there. But, you know, having that image in my head, should I be voting? Should I be doing something? Of course, then dying is not a doing. Dying is a letting go. Right. And... And if you're dying, you think you still have to do something, but your body can't even breathe anymore, then you're going to be in big trouble. 
That actually happens a lot. I know. I have people who are going to die in a few days and I got to go home and I got to fix, I got to put my affair in orders. I got to write some checks and pay the bills. And um, I don't think I've ever come to a place to say like, well, that doesn't matter now, but I just feel like I could, if I, that's what is important to them. I just try to help them do that part. Yeah. I'm not saying that's not important, but at the same yeah. time, to the extent that you or I or any of the people tuning into this thing, uh, are using life as a preparation for dying, not in any kind of morbid way, but really an in in an enlivening. You know, that right now we're we're dying into the moment with each other. All that's going on is me and Donnie talking. Cats are there and yeah, there's no multitasking or all these things. It's just right there is happening. Right. And then one day what's happening is dying. I think um, just in this line of work too, you know, it's uh, I don't think I'm as scared of dying. I may think I'm more scared of how I am going to die. You know, um, studies today show that about 90% of us, at least in, in America, we are going to die from some chronic illness. So yeah. um, we're all going to get plenty of practice getting there. You know, when it comes to dying, a lot of people end up saying, I want to die peaceful in my sleep. Or we like don't do to, that anymore because we got technology. And, or people say, I'd like to die suddenly of a brain aneurysm. And I hope God, I mean, I'm not saying, God, I want you to do this, but actually having a degenerative disease and having a few months or something to sit, really look at it with eyes wide open might not be such a bad idea. Both of my parents got cancer, and they died within six months. Which was like the perfect thing. I mean, it didn't bankrupt the family. It didn't totally exhaust us. But it really gave us a chance to complete business, to love each other. And for each of them, to, both of them died really beautifully to really get ready to do the next thing, whatever that might be. Well, maybe we all be that lucky. Yeah, we all won't be. No, no. It's not something we can count on. I'll be that 1% that gets hit by a muni or something. It'll be good. I don't have to prepare. It'll just happen. I'll be splattered. It'll be all over. It'll be awesome. On that closing note. <laughs> I was getting warmed up. I was about to get real morbid here. <laughs> well, if, if you'd like to say anything more, I mean, we've been doing this for about three quarters of an hour, which is amount of the time they wanted, but we can go on a little bit if you'd like. Well, I'm good. I just wanted to make a clarification in the beginning when I was talking about palliative, that the palliative, the definition means to ease suffering. Okay. And I didn't say that, and that should be the first thing I start when I'm describing what palliative care is. So my job is to help ease suffering. Okay. And I'd like However. to just, just thank you. Thank you so much, Donnie. I would like to give a plug for the Living Dying Project, we have an online training that's very much like the one that Donnie took. But yes, it's, do it. it. It's online. It's it's a professionally recorded and edited version of a training that I did a few years ago in Berkeley. And then there's a couple of live interactive streaming sessions. We get together online, meditate, discussion, question and answer, stuff like that. So you can go to livingdying.org and on the right side of the page is a button for live online 
education, I believe it's called. Mm. And you can sign up for that workshop as well. Our website, livingdying.org, I think is the most complete website on the internet with information about dying consciously, about grieving. There's stuff by me, Stephen Levine, Joan Halifax, different people. There's audio files and movies and guided meditations and all kinds. Of so might want to check that out. Thank you so much, Donnie. It's really been great. I look forward to seeing you in a few days. Enjoy your kitties. And I love you so much. Uh, thanks, Del. I'll see you Monday. Okay, bye-bye.